Hi there and welcome to another Russell podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Managing a patient who develops a bronchopleural fistula is one of the most challenging clinical scenarios in ICU medicine. Dr. Izzy Senevaratna is an intensive care physician and respiratory physician at the Queen Elizabeth II Jubilee Hospital in Brisbane, Australia, and he joins me today to discuss some of these issues. Izzy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Izzy, what sort of patients develop a bronchopleural fistula in the ICU? So most commonly, bronchopleural fistulas are associated in your typical cardiothoracic ICUs. So they typically occur after lung surgery, so lobectomies and um, pneumonectomies, but they can also occur after wedge resections as well. So they would be your most common patient for a bronchopleural fistula, but they can also occur in other settings. Um, Typically, these are people with underlying lung malignancies or chronic infections. They're kind of the second subset of patients that would commonly get a bronchopleural fistula. So you could kind of classify those as medical type patients. And there's a difference between a bronchopleural fistula and an alveolar leak. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so purely it's an anatomical difference. So a bronchopleural fistula is defined as a communication between the bronchial tree and the pleural space. And it goes up to the segmental bronchus. And so if it occurs anywhere proximal to that, you'd say it's a bronchopleural fistula. Whereas an alveolar pleural fistula occurs distal to that. And so that's, it's purely an anatomical um, definition. And it does come into how you would manage them as well down the track. But essentially how these individuals present, it's very similar. So the obvious presentation is that somebody who's got a chest strain in will have a persistent and large volume lung leak. Um, When else should we be thinking about this diagnosis? Yeah, so I guess when we, if we kind of divide it up into those two categories, again, the medical and surgical. So in a surgical patient that's undergone um, pneumonectomy or something like that and have gone out of ICU, they suddenly develop shortness of breath and you've got a new pneumothorax, I think that would be a kind of a red flag as to whether this patient has got a bronchopleural fistula. As you said, an individual that has a persistent air leak is another key sign, but also someone that has a worsening worsening, um, uh, pneumothorax despite a drain being placed. So if that pneumothorax is getting worse and that drain is bubbling, you have to wonder whether there is a larger air leak there. In your medical patients, sometimes these patients can present kind of subacutely, just gradually getting more and more unwell and present with a pneumothorax, or they could actually present with a tension pneumothorax. So anyone that has a known lung malignancy or kind of grumbling infection that turns up to ED and is diagnosed with a tension pneumothorax, I think I'd have a very high degree of suspicion of a bronchopleural fistula. And I think it's one of those situations where you expect the worst but hope for the best. So if I ever saw a patient with a pneumothorax, in my mind, I'm thinking, does this patient have a bronchopleural fistula? Because it's it's not common with an alveolar pleural fistula to present with tension. It is possible, but certainly just suggests a rapid amount of air leak into that pleural space and the bronchopleural fistula can certainly do that. 
So the suspicion in a patient's been raised, what are the sorts of investigations that I should be thinking about, both in terms of diagnosing and also in terms of localising the lesion? Um, so I think, as we discussed, the common etiologies of bronchopericus, I think that history is quite important because I think your clinical suspicion is very high if you've got someone that's post-surgical, post-lung transplant, those type of situations. But if we look at purely investigations, if we work from the simple things, so, you know, a chest X-ray will show a pneumothorax, but apart from that, really can't add too much more. And I guess your best imaging modality is a CT scan. And the CT scan can actually show you a couple of things. If the defect is big enough, you'll actually see it. But you can also get other signs such as bubbles around an anastomosis site or around a specific area, which could suggest um, that there is an air leak in that. Um, moving on from that, bronchoscopy is probably the other alternative way in terms of diagnosing this. And again, you can visualize the defect if it's proximal enough. But through bronchoscopy, we do use some other techniques. So it's um, not uncommon that we actually put saline into areas that we suspect look, there might be some concern. And what we're looking for is bubbles, because we shouldn't normally see bubbles around the anastomosis site. So that's something we're looking for. The other thing we look at is sometimes we instill methylene blue into the pleural space and we see where it comes into the bronchial tree. That also gives us some indication of where it is. And you have to also understand with some of these bronchopleural fistulas, if they're a new surgical site or if there's infection, there's going to be a lot of tissue swelling and things there that make direct visualisation difficult. So putting the saline in or the methylene blue just gives us a way of localizing where it could be. And if all of that is kind of failing, you can then use selective occlusion of bronchial um, segments. So you essentially put an occlusive device down, you block off that um, segmental bronchus and you see if the bubbling stops. And then you just work your way progressively to find out where that defect could be. So that's kind of how you diagnose it and then localizing it. So before we get to specific management of, uh, of a given lesion, um, presuming that a patient is on a ventilator, what's the, the ventilatory management of these types of problems? Yeah. So I think, you know, the simple things need to be done as you would for just a standard pneumothorax. So I think the most important thing is adequate drainage of that pleural space. So you need a good functioning drain. And it is not uncommon to have two or more drains for these people because if you think about the flow rates we put through a ventilator, you have a sizable bronchopleural fistula that can essentially end up in that pleural space. So that's one of the, I think, the kind of key management principle is adequate drainage of that pleural space. And then you also have to make sure that there isn't anything else happening within that pleural space, so infection and things like that. So you need to look for those things. In terms of ventilatory surgeries, again, it comes back down to some basics. If you don't have to intubate them or you can extubate them, that's definitely a lot better. So that would be one thing to do. And then it's providing as little positive pressure ventilation as possible. So if you can get them onto a spontaneous mode with little pressure support, also as little CPAP as possible as well, all those things help. So minimal positive pressure ventilation, minimal peak, spot mode, extubation early would be the general principles. 
Now, for when you've diagnosed a specific problem, other than the, the potentially the surgical correction of a, of a defect, what are the sorts of things that you as a respiratory physician might be able to apply to a patient like this? It all kind of depends on the centre you work at because, you know, bronchopleurophysials aren't common. You know, they occur infrequently. And as you mentioned, as I mentioned, sorry, they commonly occur in that surgical patient. And so a lot of them do get fixed surgically. But from a bronchoscopic procedure, where we come into it is if the patient is not suitable for surgery, so that could be a limitation, or if they're just too unwell for surgery at that moment in time. And so we need to just bridge them to getting them to surgery. So one thing we commonly use is probably a stent. And so these are silicon or metallic stents. And essentially, they provide a railroad for air to pass through and not leak into that pleural space. And these stents can be placed from the trachea down. And so there's different varieties of stents that can be used. So that's the most common thing we do is just stent that lesion. And then sometimes that's enough, or at least it's enough for some granulation tissue to form infection to settle, and then a definitive surgery to occur. Um, if the lesion is a bit smaller, so we typically have a cutoff around eight millimeters, you can use other devices. So there's a device called the Amplexa device, which is commonly used for um, PFO management. And essentially it goes on either side of the deficit, it deploys and creates a valve there, a plug, so to speak. So that's something we can also use as well. And, you know, you have to realize that these are case studies and case series rather than tried and true randomized controlled trials, but that has been shown to work as well. Um, smaller defects, you can sometimes use ablative therapy, so actually just sclerose them. So, but those I have to admit are done less commonly, and those smaller deficits typically occur in medical patients. And so sometimes it's enough just to manage infection, debride any unhealthy tissue around that area bronchoscopically and just give it time, drain that pleural space well and just give it time to heal and form a scar on its own. So those small lesions, we do try to see if we can just manage them conservatively to some extent. Izzy, in your experience, what are the outcomes for patients like this? How commonly do things um, like uh, bronchoscopic management of these problems work and how many patients would go on to a more definitive surgical outcome? So I guess we, I think there is a bit of selection bias as well, I have to say. So those patients that we use bronchoscopic interventions for are ones that would typically um we would say would heal well, wouldn't need any more definitive surgery, and it's a small defect. And so when I was working in the transplant field, so we would have anastomotic leaks and things like that. And so in individuals that have just undergone a thoracotomy and have an anastomotic leak, obviously opening up that chest again and going in is a lot more difficult. And so we would stent that bronchus and we'd have good outcomes from it. And so these individuals would then have a stent in there, they're getting graftment of tissue and there's no issues there. So they typically do have good outcomes from a bronchoscopic point of view, but I guess, like I said, it's a we do have a bit of selection bias that we would typically use those in individuals that we know are likely to benefit from it and it wouldn't be, you know, and I think in our first instance, we'd always be saying, look, is surgery possible? Yes, then let's do surgery, but otherwise would be very 
you know, critical of the patients we pick and treat. Just finally, do you have any other tips and tricks for those out there who uh, might not uh, deal with this problem very often? Yeah, I think um, one thing, as I said before, is a high degree of suspicion. So, you know, think for the worst, hope for the best. And um, I think one thing, you know, I forgot to mention is, you know, if you clearly have a patient that's got a tension pneumothorax and you're really worried about this diagnosis, you know, you can do a selective intubation of the left or right main. And, you know, that's, it can be done blindly, you know, you just go in a bit further. And so that is something to consider. And especially I think in those areas that don't have readily access to cardiothoracics and, you know, interventional bronchoscopy, sometimes a tube in the non-affected lung will be your lifesaver. And, you know, that can be done. And most anesthetic departments will have a, um, a tube for that. And so I think that's a good strategy to have as a backup for how do I manage this patient until I can get them to definitive care. So, and I think that's one thing I, I'll make sure that people don't forget. It's those basics that really get people to those tertiary centers, the complex things like bronchoscopy and surgery, they come after the fact it's diagnosing it and managing it for that transfer to those centers. Izzy, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, as well as our entire collection of podcasts, modules, quizzes, articles and videos, download the free MyOsler app from your app store or visit our website at oslocommunity.com.